Welcome to Pod Parks, a podcast for the park-minded, brought to you by World Urban Parks. In this podcast, we'll embark on a journey through the world of parks, from intimate community parks to sprawling urban national parks and everything in between. Join us as we explore the beauty and diversity of these urban oases. Meet the individuals and organizations working tirelessly to preserve and improve them. Our guide will be Alice Landin, Research Development Advisor for World Urban Parks. So come along as we rediscover the green spaces that make our cities livable. Welcome back to Pod Parks. I am so happy that we get a chance to chat again. So last week, I was trying to get in a park mood by listening to all of the greats sing about parks, and I could not, for the life of me, find any old park music. I mean, don't get me wrong, we have some great 60s hits like Billy Stewart's Sitting in the Park, and a lot of 80s rock like Chicago's Saturday in the Parks. But where are the songs that capture the romanticism of a Victorian park? Where are the ballads that capture what it's like to go on a picnic on a public lawn in the 1940s? I felt like there was a gap in park history and park pop culture in the early 20th century. So of course, I had to go over to my very favorite park professionals for some answers. All right, okay. I mean... Majority people often think the majority parks that we got were actually during Victorian times, but actually most of the parks that we have and enjoy today were 20th century. Um, so from kind of like 1900 onwards. Um, and part of that is due to the condition of, again, health and well-being issues. But the First World War, the Second World War had a, a, a major impact. This is Paul Rabbits, author and park historian. You know, we ended up with King George V playing fields. We had the National Playing Fields Association established. Again, much more geared around sport and physical activity. So you look at parks, the park, whole issue of park design changed. Um, you know, it was clear that men going to war, or if they survived the war, came back, were just not in great physical condition. So, you know, the, the whole idea of, of physical activity, football, cricket, rugby, all the activity, tennis, etc., becoming more dominant in, in park design. Before the First World War, picturesque parks had become an essential part of booming city life. And as we discussed in our first episode, they were designed to create both an escape from the urban environment and to promote physical and mental health of city residents. But with the war, Together with just overall the general socio-political landscape of the early 20th century, priorities changed, and many parks were created or adapted to include more sports facilities and more active landscapes, where the functional elements were a lot more important than the style and beauty elements of urban spaces. And one of the best examples I can think of is Eaton Park uh, in Norwich, designed by a, a chap called Captain Sandis Winch, uh, opened in 1929, I think. Um, and that was very much geared around sport and physical activity. Parks became places to get young men to start running and exercising and preparing for the war. 
And then after the war, they became places for veterans to get physical therapy and to try to reintegrate into urban life. As time went on, municipal governments began to accept parks as part of their responsibilities. And this cemented the growing idea that parks were just recreational facilities that had to be, quote, managed efficiently at reduced costs. So this meant reducing personnel, going for a very simple, very low maintenance design, reducing the amount of programming and activities that went on in parks, and just overall neglecting the upkeep and the improvement projects that keep parks alive. This is why some of the parks that were built in the last century have no artistic vision. And then the Second World War came, and parks were, yet again, relegated into the very end of the to-do list. And what we were left with after the Second World War was loads of our parks and open spaces open to all, uh, open to kinds of activity. Park keepers had disappeared, but also the, the, the change in recreation. You know, you didn't need bandstands, for instance. One of my pet, pet things is, you know, if you wanted music, you went to the park. Uh, and the band were playing on the bandstand. After the Second World War, you had TV, radio, gramophone, music hall, theatre. You could go to the seaside. You could go out to country parks. Uh, and then T Thomas Cook came along and we ended up with cheap holidays abroad. So the whole, everything changed. After the Second World War, suburbia sprawled. Cities grew outwards rather than upwards, and as people moved to low-density suburbs that were far away from the city center, all of these iconic colossal parks received fewer and fewer visitors every year. And as Paul says, as new technology and new trends emerged, going to the park wasn't seen as essential anymore. Dr. Catherine Ward-Thompson, professor of landscape architecture, even suggests that these new individual visions extended to the idea of health. So again, these 19th century uh, park developers were often very prescient. And what seemed to happen in the early 20th century when we had huge developments in medical and clinical science, which we're all very grateful for, um, was that the focus of, on, on looking after people's health tended to focus in on the individual and clinical interventions which were becoming much more successful than they had been in the 19th century. But the focus on parks as supporting good health somehow uh, was less clearly focused. That focus was less clear. Uh, and you get to the kind of like the 1960s, 1970s, uh, where money was really tight you get to the 1970s, money really was tight, and then the, the government moving into the 1980s invented what they called compulsory competitive tendering, uh, and everything became about cost. And it was about the cost of doing things for as little as possible, and the whole issue around quality disappeared. So we lost parks departments. If there was a park keeper still around or a park ranger, they went. It was a cost-saving. Um, fences had gone, activity going on in parks that was not deemed appropriate. Who was there to stop that activity? Nobody. So, of course, if we couple all of these new priorities and new ideas 
that trend more towards individuality rather than the community that is built in parks. And we mix in how municipal governments had to calculate the cost of providing, we can really foresee a sharp decline in parks. And although in a lot of these Western historic cities, this happened in the 50s throughout the 70s, this idea of having a bland, suburban, unkempt park really resonates with what I saw in the early 2000s and even closer to today in some of newer cities in emerging countries. Parks were seen as this beautiful and visionary thing to build, but nobody really wanted to maintain them. So they were taken on as a burden rather than as an investment. The global revival of parks is hard to pinpoint really, as it's been happening at different paces all around the world. But there's been a couple of really interesting intersections that have led us to the type of park advocacy that we have today. You know, to you and I being able to chat every week about what makes parks so great and how to make them better. So let's run through some of those moments. In 1961, American journalist and activist Jane Jacobs released The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Some things are said so often that nobody thinks of what they mean anymore. For instance, for years we've been hearing, take the children off the streets. Off the streets and into where? Jane Jacobs, through this book, created a big critique of American city planning that saw infrastructure before people and often ignored or even oversimplified how important human interactions in diverse communities are for building a city. And although Jane Jacobs wasn't necessarily talking about parks, she discussed how creating spaces for interactions between people would create safer, cleaner cities and overall more connected communities. These ideas became part of this growing movement that believed that every crevice of a town of a city had recreational value. Not only parks, but sidewalks, plazas, Little corners could become places for people to meet and interact and bring life to the city. Parks were no longer an escape from urban life, but rather another bustling component of it. And the best public spaces were designed to create a kaleidoscope of experiences that combined people from different backgrounds and could go anywhere from just a walk or a stroll to, to a once in a lifetime experience or event. And this, of course, extended to music. Well, good morning. It's Dan O from Central Park on WNEW-FM in New York. We already have somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 people gathered on the Great Lawn for some rock and roll music with Elton John for free. There were some folks that were here two days ago at 10 o'clock in the morning roping off areas just to be sure they had a great seat for this show. It's pretty incredible. We'll try and move about and talk with them a little bit later on as the reports continue from Central Park. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon and Garfunkel. The Dixie Chick. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our picnic by the Serpentine. I, I think there was a um, there was a, a shift 
suppose in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, as, as people started rediscovering outdoors. Um, if you look at, for instance, uh, the loss of bandstands, um, you know, there was a, a, a shift in people performing outdoors. Um, bands started playing some really well-known bands, for instance, The Who, um, Fleetwood Mac, uh, playing in, on Parliament Hill uh, in London. You, you had Dire Straits on Clapham Common. Um, if you go to Harlow, um, you had everybody there from Mungo Jerry to the Atomic Rooster to the Bay City Rollers, uh, all playing outdoors. So there's a bit of a shift into this perception that outdoor spaces were, were, were good for you. I think the real, the real change came in kind of the early 1990s. That um, Historic England, for instance, or what was English Heritage, uh, l listing a lot of parks, many parks were actually listed, uh, and a realisation that a lot of heritage was wrapped up in our public parks. So parks were now music venues and heritage sites and tourist attractions. And local governments, who for some time had seen them as a burden, started seeing the economic, the social, and the environmental values that parks really bring to the table. The pendulum started swinging back to parks. But as parks became more important for city life, we started to realize that they still had to compete for funds with other social services, such as health and waste management. As a result, conservancies and public-private partnerships and other organizations and mechanisms for funding started to emerge. And more park professionals began to reach out for help and to look for other common experiences. And so the International Federation of Parks and Recreation Administration, IFPRA, was born. So IFPRA was an international forum for people, organizations, and cities managing park and recreation and fostering international cooperation. It was developed from an international congress of the Institute of Parks Administration in London in 1957 and created in Bern, Switzerland, 1969. You're listening to Digby White, former CEO of IFPRA and the first CEO of World Urban Parks. The main benefits were conferences every three years, seminars and technical tours, and a quarterly magazine. Its membership was chiefly Europeans, where people could meet, and Asia-Pacific. IFPRA became the leading organization that represented parks and park professionals from around the world. I spoke to Christy Boylan, lecturer at the Technological University of Dublin and former chair of the World Parks Academy, and he described what these first years of IFPRA meant for the parks community and how this impacted parks around the world. There was always a Congress somewhere in the world every year, alternating between the Europe region and the Asia-Pacific region. Every third year it was a World Congress, which was usually well attended. The Congress events were very good opportunities to meet with colleagues from other nations, and very often such contacts would lead to a follow-up with specific people on matters of common interest or when a person would be visiting another country. IFPRA helped professionalize the parks industry and developed research that highlighted the benefits and layers of parks creation and management around the world. And in 2013, a strategic review led by Parks for Life showed the need to redirect IFPRA's model to one that could be more inclusive, more people-centered, 
and had a bigger role in advocacy for urban parks. So IFPRA funded a strategic review in 2013 and it asked Parks for Life to do it, um, along with one of its associations, Parks Forum. And the resulting report recommended a two a new model inclusive organization that would complement the IUCN and world leisure organizations with an urban parks and recreation focus. And this is where consider where most of the world's population lived. So in October 2013, the organization endorsed planning of a new IFPRA. This new and reimagined organization contained a vision for people all around the world to have easy access to quality urban parks, open space, recreation. And the members of IFPRA, along with other parks and recreation professionals from around the world, decided to create this new organization with the hopes to bring parks back on the table. Most of the members knew each other well and were well able to work together and help make World Open Parks the success it is today. IFRA members also influenced new World Open Park members by their support, which added credibility to World Open Parks. And after years of rewriting and creating this new organization, World Urban Parks was born. And who better to introduce it than Jane Miller, chair of World Urban Parks. World Urban Parks is an international organization that was created in 2015 to bring together the world, focusing on urban parks, nature, and green spaces in cities. Jane is among the many park professionals that are advocating for greener cities through the world of World Urban Parks. And our mission and goal is to ensure that parks, green space, and nature are part of an urban environment in terms of city building, um, making life better for residents in urban communities in so many ways, and in particular also bringing parts of the world that have the resources and history of creating parks, preserving green spaces, and nature to parts of the world that don't have those resources or talents and has not been part of the equation of those cities. So really, as development and growth continues around the world, for us to ensure and implement parks, green space, and preservation of nature in cities for city living. The pendulum is swinging back. And as more people in the world are living in urban communities, we're starting to realize how important it is for urban spaces to be healthy. Healthy for the planet and healthy for the people living in them. And this, of course, means analyzing and recognizing the nuances of park creation and park management and promoting knowledge to create parks not only for royals, for young men, for wealthy residents, but for everyone. Coupled with that, however, is ensuring that people who are of low income are not displaced out of areas when park development occurs. So, so World Urban Parks as an organization can work with cities to help ensure that they put strategies in place so that the most vulnerable in our cities are not displaced from the very land that we're creating and preserving to improve everyone's quality of life. We've come a long way since the close hunting grounds and the era of rational recreation and 
dull patches of suburban grass. We now understand that parks are an essential part of city life because nature is an essential part of human connection. And as cities become larger and the effects of climate change become more and more present, parks are gaining an even bigger role in creating resilient, future-proof cities. And now, not everyone has access to undisturbed wilderness in their backyards, but everybody should have access to safe, healthy experiences in the outdoors that help them connect with themselves, with others, and with nature. And parks can help us create those opportunities. And I think what's happened at the end of the 20th century and now in our 21st century is a reappraisal of those initial impetuses for developing public parks and a recognition that actually those were right all along. The details may, be, may differ a bit and how we explain the relationship between being in a green park or a green space and how our health is enhanced, we may have a more sophisticated understanding of, but the basics actually remain the same. Uh, and so I think uh, there's a really strong argument for yet again thinking about the importance. In the 19th century, no city thought of itself as a proper city to be proud of if it didn't have a grand public park or two to show off to visitors. Well, we still need that, but we need not just the grand public parks for the tourists and the visitors, but a place, a park, a green space that's accessible to everyone wherever they are, that they can feel proud of. I love that. We don't only desperately need parks, but we need parks that make us feel proud. And I believe that together, we can really make the 21st century the century of parks. This marks the end of today's episode. Keep up with our upcoming episodes to discover why today's parks are more important than ever. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review to help reach more park enthusiasts around the world. Thank you to everyone who has left us a positive review so far. Since this is a new podcast, your comments and your recommendations make a really big impact in helping us reach more listeners. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, I cannot end this episode without inviting you to become a member of World Urban Parks. It does not matter where you're from, what language you speak, what level of involvement you have with parks. Believe me, you are going to find resources aligned to your needs. And we have a huge community of park professionals that are so eager to connect and to join forces in promoting the world of parks. So don't hesitate to find out more and become a member at worldurbanparks.org. And last but definitely not least, you know, we have heard a bit of the history of parks. And now I want to know about your park story. What is your relationship with parks? And what would you like it to become? Thank you for listening to Pod Parks by World Urban Parks. Pod Parks is written and hosted by Alice Landin, produced by Vitoria Martin and Luis Roman, sound engineering by Vladimir Yanez. Don't forget to visit worldurbanparks.org and explore the resources our online community has for you. Get out. Explore. Connect.